Welcome to Hiawatha again. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we are going to uh, dive right into our series in the book of Matthew. So if you're new to us, uh, new to our church, new to the Bible even, wherever you are spiritually, we are uh, right now in the first book of the New Testament talking about Jesus. And we have been for a couple of years. We always do every Sunday, of course, but uh, particularly from this gospel account, Matthew, there's four of them in the New Testament. Matthew's the first. And looking at the story of Christ, really, his, everything from his birth to his death and his resurrection, we are almost right now uh, at uh, really it's kind of the cusp of the climax, the threshold of the climax of the story. Jesus has been betrayed into the hands of sinful men. He's on trial. He's just hours from his death, and we are reading over and studying some of his last words before his death, and we'll look at some of his final words on the cross in particular in coming weeks, which are especially uh, significant. But even at his trial, Spence preached last week at his trial with the chief priests and the elders, and he's in process now being handed over to Pilate, who was a Roman governor. We'll talk about that a little bit more here in a second, too, and especially next week when Peter preaches, he'll talk some more about that. But we're going to talk today about Judas one last time. Judas Iscariot, if you're unfamiliar with him, Jesus had 12 good friends or disciples in his ministry. Uh, one of whom was destined, as the Bible says, Jesus says this a couple of times as well, so it's clear, destined to betray him. And so it's already happened here in the story. We've seen that occur. Uh, but Judas, there are two Judases actually of the 12, so not to mistake with the other Judas, uh, but Judas is Judas Iscariot, the betrayer of Christ. And today we're going to look at this uh, passage where he hangs himself and some surrounding issues here exchanged with the chief priests as well as some other things too that are occurring, uh, scripture being fulfilled and so forth here in the first 10 verses of chapter uh, 27. And uh, so it's a, it's a heavier concept, and, and the scriptures, I think, waffle between these two things a lot. There's wedding-like themes, and in some ways, these darker themes as well, that uh, equally portray Christ, equally lead us to him, just in different, uh, different manners. And, and today is one of those ones that, this is actually a passage that's unique to just Matthew as well. Uh, Mark, Luke, and John do not talk about uh, the hanging of, G- the suicide of, of uh, Judas uh, just Matthew does. So it's an intriguing passage. I was like talking to someone last week too who was saying this, who was telling me how he's been intrigued by Judas in this Matthew series a lot. And I said, I, I concur. I thought, I, it's kind of one of those situations where you drive by a car crash, right? And it's, like, it's hard not to look at it. You just want to look, you have to look at it because Judas is just this train wreck of a guy. And a lot of the, a lot of the disciples are. Peter, Peter's as well. Judas is especially. But it's a spin on it because when we're looking at the car crash, we go by and we see our reflection in, in, the, in the mirror. Because we realize that I'm not that far away from being in the same position. This is really, he's similar to me. I'm also human like this guy. And I too have denied or betrayed Christ with my actions and words. At some point in my life, or even now as a Christian, I feel that tendency, that draw, that propensity. So uh, there's a spin on it. And there's a dramatic uptick this week then in the drama of the passage. And we're, again, we're approaching the cross. But before we get there, uh, Matthew is bent on us understanding that uh, Judas kills himself here. And we'll understand why that has to happen here too. So Matthew 27, 1 to 10. If you want to follow along on screen, we'll read through the whole passage to begin. I think you have a sermon insert too if you want to follow along there or open your Bibles uh, to Matthew 27. And let's read it here to begin. Verse 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. We'll stop right there for one second. A couple comments here. I could spend a lot of time on the first two verses, but just remember where we've been. Jesus' trial has begun. Before the chief priests of the Jews and the elders of the Jews, they've declared him guilty of blasphemy 
or particularly claiming to be God, but also in his, in his particular ways of approaching the Old Testament law and, and claiming to fulfill it, they deemed it as an abuse of that. And so in some ways, too, he's being uh, declared guilty of that as well, but especially claiming to be the Son of God. Or last week he used the term the Son of Man, which came from Daniel 7 in the Old Testament, which was a messianic uh, label or title of uh, being, being one who, who came from the Ancient of Days or one from who, who proceeded forth from God himself to bring God's justice and his kingdom and his salvation to the world uh, in full. And so by saying, I am the son of man, he's saying, I am the son of God. I am the one who proceeds from God. I am the ultimate Lord and Savior. And so that was the final straw. That was the one where they put their finger on that and said, this is blasphemy, and we're going to kill him for this. And so it's really claiming to be the son of God, but also his abuse in their eyes of Old Testament law. They're judging him. So now he's being bound, led away to Pilate, who was a Roman governor of the day, ruling over one of the provinces, a Roman province, which happened to be in Israel, but a Roman province of the day of this formerly annexed land. And so that's who he is. He's a non-Jew, of course. He's a, he's a Gentile. And Peter will talk more about that next week. But for, for this week, I just want you to see and remember, if you've been here, remember back to passages like, and I'll read this from chapter 20, just to see how this is yet another fulfillment of Jesus' perfect prophetic prediction of all these events. So look what he said before he was even in Jerusalem as he was heading there with his disciples. Back in chapter 20, he says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Which if you think about that, especially the things here in yellow, this is exactly what's happening in order. So he's not just saying, I'm going to die, which would be amazing enough, but he gets precise with the circumstances surrounding it, the details of it as well. So even just in going to the top up here in today's passage in verse 2, being bound and led away and delivered over to Pilate and the governor, and also the chief priests and elders in the top verse as well, verse 1, the, the correlation is, is amazing. Jesus is saying, I'm going to be bound and led away by the chief priests and the elders. And even in verse 2, the fact that Jesus was given to Gentiles, so Pilate being that, that non-Jew, and to be crucified with something the Jews could not do, this is a Roman form of execution, had to happen, or else Jesus would be proved a liar, or a false prophet, or just wrong and imperfect. So it had to occur. Remember, his posture of being in control, his posture of speaking exactly what's going to happen beforehand says, I am God. I know the future, and but it also says, this is, this is where it really starts to preach to us as well. Those are factual things, but where it starts to preach is that it portrays a God who says, my death means something. I'm wanting it to occur. It's going to take sinners and make them righteous in God's eyes. It's going to wash the filthiest. This is, this is the way God's kingdom is going to come into the world. This is how it gives. It's a kingdom of hope precisely because he dies. If he doesn't, it's just God amidst unholy people. And if you read the Old Testament, we see that when, when we as sinners enter into the holy place, we, we fall flat in our faces dead. We die. We cannot touch the holy face of God. We can't even look at it because we're that imperfect and that dead in our sins. But, but Christ here is making, he's bringing an end to that system and making it possible for God just to walk among sinners again and hold their hands and touch them and, and vice versa and talk to them and be gentle with them and and have communion again, like he did with Adam and Eve back in, back in the garden. And so the posture here is important to understand. Not just his, his posture of control and his, of the whole situation, but his prediction of it as well tells us 
that he has a plan for his death, and his death means something as well. It's salvific. It is the way that God is promising to undo the curse of all creation. He is fulfilling it. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 3. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Uh, now, we're not going to talk very much about these last few verses, but just a quick comment on them. Just suffice it to say for today, we're going to focus elsewhere, uh, but for today's purposes, that Matthew here is noting with this Jeremiah quotation in, in uh, the last couple of verses here, an Old Testament prophet, that how yet again predictive prophecy of the Old Testament is being fulfilled. Not just in the broad, but the very specific. So even down just to the nitty-gritty of how this money being returned by Judas back to the ones who gave it to him so that he might betray Jesus, how that was going to be used, what it was going to be used to purchase this field for strangers to be, to be buried in, which would be called the field of blood. Isn't it amazing that even that precise detail is being predicted hundreds of years before Christ and perfectly playing out here uh, before, before us? And so Matthew's citing this, so that, again, we might even here say, again, his death is part of the plan. His betrayal, particularly here with the money in mind, his betrayal, which leads to his death, has to occur to bring about a kingdom that will benefit us and just exude the mercy and love and grace of God who became human to die in our place. All right, but here's how we're going to approach the rest of the passage today. We're going to, like I said, we're going to focus elsewhere. There was a lot more to say about those verses. Could have gone there, but I want to focus more on Judas, uh, one more time before he falls out of the picture here, uh, at least primarily so, and uh, talk about uh, failure today on two levels. Today's really about failure on a couple of levels. Religion's failure, or man's failure, uh, it's kind of the same thing, I'll talk about that in a minute, and evil's failure, I'm going to phrase it here, evil's implosion. Like we're seeing here evil implode on itself uh, today in a special kind of way, which means something quite uh, encouraging uh, for us today, too, who are, who are saved and those who are not saved here as well, for those who can be by trusting in Christ today, too. So, so religion's failure and evil's failure, which then, of course, leaves us, if you're following the characters, just the sheer characters in the story, it leaves us with Jesus, who, interestingly enough, is winning a victory for us here. And Peter talked about that before that last song, that through his death actually brings a victory for him because he wins a victory over death but also to those who share in him. And he is a God who, who wins something for his people and shares that victory with them. You see that principle play out a lot in the Old Testament as well with kings and prophets and judges who win victories and share with the people of Israel. But here it's greater in scope. It's for everyone who believes, Jew and Gentile, those who are far from God and those who are near. Everyone who says, I want to receive that victory over sin and death that God wins for us. And so this is that dramatic irony though. At this point in the story, Things are not looking good. If you don't know the end of the story, things are just tanking for Jesus 
right? When we have the fact that he's predicting these things, what's well, a glimmer of hope. But if you don't know the end, things are looking very bad, very bad for Jesus. But the dramatic irony is we've been seeing play out time and time and time again in the passage is it's in the precise moment where evil seems to have the upper hand that Jesus strikes his fatal blow against it. It's just good storytelling, right? This is history. It's not just a story, but it's just good storytelling. It's like any movie where the main character, the protagonist, the good guy, is just painted into a corner. No way out. Boxed into a corner. No way out. And it's precisely in that moment that he strikes that blow and, and wins or arrests the bad guy or kills the bad guy, whatever it is. He's painted into that corner. That's what we want. We're almost used to seeing that, right? I always think that sometimes now when I watch movies, and it's that, it's that good storytelling of being in that moment. You just kind of expect the protagonist to get out of it because we're just so used to it. It's almost like we just, in our deepest corners of our souls, we want that to be true, right? We see it play out, but we really want that to be true in the highest sense of the idea or the word or the concept or the story, and it is. And so we know the end, that this is not the end for Christ, right? He's, he's going, he's, he's, it seems like, all the cards are stacked against him, but it's precisely in that moment that he uses the circumstance, orchestrating the circumstance, to bring about great victory and good. And so we're going to see that play out in a couple ways, especially a little bit later on, talking about evil imploding. Before we get there, though, uh, on this failure topic idea, I want to look at this idea of religion failing first uh, with the first couple of verses here. Let me read verses uh, 3 and 4 one more time. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. So, fascinating exchange here, right? It's interesting that this is recorded. I love that this is here. It's fascinating that we have this, this it doesn't have to be here in one sense, but this exchange between the betrayer and the ultimate betrayers, the, one, the murderers, I guess you could say, the betrayer and the murderers, the chief priests and the elders, where, and, and in, inside the heart of the betrayer as well, right? We see, this is kind of one of those moments where you do want to look more at the car crash. You want to say, look at this guy. This is the guy who was in full-blown betrayal mode and now changes his mind, who can't relate to that, right? Who's sinned and then felt bad about it, basically, is what's going on here afterwards. So he realizes he's sinned. He's done wrong. He's betrayed an innocent man unto death. So a pretty bad one, right? He's betrayed an innocent man unto his death. He sees that Jesus is condemned unto death and feels that conviction of, I've done something, something wrong here. So naturally, or maybe not naturally, but naturally in this guy's case at least, burdened by this realization, he tries to remedy it, right? He goes back to the chief priests who he got the money from, for betraying Jesus and tries to give it back. Now, understand here that the chief priests and elders are, uh, they're, they're kind of a multifaceted figure in, in the first century. On the one hand, they're political type figures and leaders in some ways, but also, obviously, they're pastor types, right? These are the spiritual leaders of the day. These are the chief priests and the, and the elders who guide, or are supposed to anyway, be guiding Israel in a spiritual manner. So, in one sense, Judas is just trying to undo what he did. I got money for betraying Jesus. I'm going to go back to these guys who gave it to me and says, here, take it back. I don't want it. I was wrong to take it. I betrayed an innocent man unto death. So not unlike a thief returning something to the owner after he, after he stole it, right? 
Alitha and I had that happen actually the other day. We had someone broke into our car and took some stuff. And then two days later, it was on our boulevard. <laughs> it was like, which is kind of cool because we were pray. We always, always pray for people that break into our house. Not that it happens every day. But a couple of times, we pray for that, that they feel conviction and, and, and so forth. But this time, all of a sudden, there's stuff's there in a pile in our boulevard. I'm guessing that person felt that I did something wrong when we returned it. It's actually one house down. They forgot which house it was. But that's our stuff. So um, we picked it up and, and put it back. Anyway. Uh, so, in one sense, uh, this is what's going on. Judas is trying to undo his sin by returning the money to those who gave it to him. In another sense, though, almost more importantly, Judas is going back to these pastor types, right? These spiritual leader types to ask for help, not unlike anyone else running to a pastor or just one of their friends who are Christians to confess sin, to ask for help overcoming it, and to, in that way, Seek reconciliation with God as well. That's what, he, that's what he's doing here, right? Judas says, I have sinned. Help me, right? To the chief priest. I've, I've done wrong. Take the money back. Help me. Spiritual guides, help me. But what do they say to him? Verse 4, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Isn't that fascinating? What is that to us? See to it yourself. Now, there's a couple of things to pull from this. One, don't ever say this to someone who confesses sin to you. I guess, right? Let's just get that out. If you're, try, if you're training to be a pastor, uh, or I, I mean anybody, this is true for any Christian, but if you're training to be a pastor, especially elder type, uh, lesson number one is don't do that <laughs> ever. Okay, just get that out there. Uh, but it, it lets us further into the heart of these religious leaders, right? It lets us see more into their murderous intent, their selfish. They just don't care. They don't give a rip about this guy who's coming back. They're not doing their job, obviously, right? But we see it at a micro level here. We see it at the macro level, they're killing Christ. They're murderers. But on a micro level, they just don't care about this guy who basically walked into the pastor's office and said, I'm enchained by sin. I can't get out. Help me. Where do I go? See to it. What's that to us? See to it yourself. So and that's the second thing. The first part is this first clause, what's that to us? But the second part is seeing both those clauses together or sentences, really. What is that to us? In the second part, see to it yourself. Again, fascinating. Judas says, I have sinned. The chief priests here say, go and see to that yourself. Not only reveals to us their hateful, uncaring hearts, but also there, in a way, at least incomplete, if not completely poor and whacked theology. On God, on sin, and on atonement in particular. And remember, that this, this principle of contrast we're seeing a lot play out in math. The whole Bible is a book of contrast, you could say, in one sense, uh, but in, in more of that micro sense here in the smaller details. We've seen it play out so often in Matthew's narrative like this, and we're seeing it here too. Religion, represented by chief priests of the Jews here and the elders, basically says to us in our sin, see to it yourself. Try harder. But God says the contrast of that. I will see to it. You don't have to see to it yourself, right? It's the complete opposite of these. And it's, there's irony there, of course, because these are the people that are supposed to know the right answer, but they don't. I am, I'm offering you grace in the complete opposite way the chief priests are. It's basically what God is saying to us here, narratively. Isaiah 40, 13, God says, For I am the Lord, your God, who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, Do not fear I will help you. Judas is saying, help me from my sin. Chief priests say, see it to yourself. God says, 
I will help you. I am the Lord and I will do it. It gets better. Three chapters later, Isaiah 43, 25 says, I, and God wants us to know it's him, not people. It's him, not circumstance. It's him, not strong armies. It's him, not the, the strongest spiritual people and spiritual guides in the world. It's him who saves. So it, it's, this, it's this common thing you'll see declaratively in the prophets of the Old Testament, for example, where God will say, I am the Lord, and he'll add, I will do this. He says that in love, first to glorify his name, but first because he knows that us creatures who are not God, but in our sin think we're our own gods, he needs us to know that. This is part of what salvation is. We, we come from self-deification to, to proper deification of the Christ and to God. We, we, that's where things should be, but they're just not anymore in this cursed world. And so God wants us to know, I am God. So Isaiah 43 says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. So do you see the irony here? Like we just talked about, the, the, it's just like slathered on like thick butter on toast, the irony in the passage. And that the chief priests who exemplify a works-based, it's all about me, I can do it if I try hard enough type religious mindset, who are exemplifying that here, fail to save. They cannot save, and what they're representing cannot save us from our sins. But Jesus here, who's kind of in the background in this passage, but it's inferred, prodding along, going the way of the cross faithfully, says, with his actions and his words, I will see to the sin problem of the world. I am seeing to the sin problem of the world, right? The chief priests, complete 180, what they should know. And Jesus is saying, no, I will see to it. Even now there's hope for Judas. Even now, for all the betrayers, all the deniers, there's no sin that's unforgivable, Jesus says earlier in Matthew. There's no sin. There's no sin outside of God's grace. And Jesus is just prodding along here as the chief priests are speaking these words to Judas. He's prodding along with his actions saying, I am he who blots out your sins. I'm about to do it. I am here to hold your hand, to love you, to speak grace to you, to say do not fear to you and to help you out of your sin condition. Let me see to it, he's saying. The contrast is stark. And, and, and getting this idea of who represents what is a key element to that. But regardless of that, just understand that they fail to save and fail to offer hope and they fail to give that grace to, to, to Judas. And what that's representing is a system of of selfishness and works that, that Christ is entering into but offering a different hope in light of. He's saying, I will see to it. I love you. Let me blot out your sin. So as we move on from that, as we frequently do here when we're studying these types of things in the Bible, we should pause and ask the how. Well, how is that the case? How is he going to blot out sins? How is that going to actually end up working? And we know, we know the broader answer. We always talk about this every week, of course, but it's the, the broader answer. We just sang about Peter talked about it before I even walked up here. We sang about it earlier as well. The answer is the cross. The answer is God condescending himself into the world, becoming a human being, and dying in our place. That's, that's what's happening here in the narrative. He's like a sheep to the slaughter with very few words going to be obedient to God the Father, but also motivated by love to go to die for sinners like us. But there's a special slant on this as well. And we've got to talk about these things broadly and specifically as Christians because the Bible does. The broad is good. It's not wrong. It's just to say sometimes the Bible says 
underneath the broad statement, here's something very specific that's happening on the cross as well. So if someone ever asks you, or if this is your question today, what really happened on the cross? Understand this is not a simple answer. It may be in one sense it's simple, but in one sense it's very complex. That's probably the better answer to it. There's a simple answer to it, but in another sense, there's a very complex, multifaceted answer. John Piper, another pastor here in the cities, has a book on that called uh, 50 Reasons Why Christ Died. And I think there are even more. I mean, there's, from the Bible, 50 angles on the one idea of God dying on a cross in the place of people. So there's one main idea, but you can twist that in the light and get different angles on the diamond. And you're basically saying the same thing. But the Bible has a complex approach to it. So I think we get, in today's passage, a, a specific angle on it demonstrated that we get elsewhere as well in the scriptures that we're going to see narratively play out here with this idea of evil imploding. So just to get that out to begin, that's one of the things that's happening in, in the story here and on the cross is evil implodes on itself like a dying star. <laughs> just like, gets sucked up. And so in verse 5, uh, we see it, and I'll comment on this in a second. Let me read this again. And throwing down, this is Judas, throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. So let's look at this, uh, what I think is a, a multi-layered verse here, an idea. Judas hangs himself out of apparent shame and perceived remorse, and in his eyes, irreconcilable sin. He just couldn't handle what he had done. And we'll talk more about the man Judas here in a minute. We'll end with a couple of words on him. Uh, but before we get there, uh, on another level, I think there's something much more going on here as well. Like there usually is uh, in narrative, Usually as in passages like this, you have God saying something or writing something down that physically happened in the world that has a greater spiritual meaning behind it. It's almost always going on. We just got to peel back the layers and say, oh, there's that greater spiritual concept that applies to more people or that speaks into my context now as a 21st century Christian. Or that really helps us to see what's going on on the cross because the gospel is always in mind or in focus. A physical thing that gives way to a spiritual reality. The hidden elements sometimes, then, are the things that actually mean more to us that we have to do more of the work uh, to uncover. But they're there nonetheless. So to help us see this other layer, uh, we need to back up and remember that a couple weeks ago we saw this, but uh, John's gospel in the New Testament is more clear. That remember that Judas is not just a betrayer, but he's a Satan-incited betrayer. He's not just a betrayer, He's full of Satan when he betrays Jesus. John 13, 27 says, Satan entered into Judas and incited him to betray Jesus. Which tells us, and, and Judas wanted to, he's not like, you know, not sinning here. He, Satan is cooperating with Judas's desires as well. Judas is a thief and, and murder has murderous intent as well. But regardless, Satan entered into Judas, which tells us what? It tells us that Satan wanted to kill Jesus, Right? Satan's wanting the betrayal to happen. He's wanting to kill, to kill Christ. And he's, doing, he's beginning to do that through Jesus. But it also tells us earlier in the story, remember way back in Matthew 4 we saw this, and Matthew 16 as well, it tells us Satan earlier in the story was trying to derail the cross from happening. We see this many places, but one of them is when Peter says to Jesus in Matthew 16, after Jesus says, I'm going to die on the cross and so forth, Peter says, Far be it from you, Lord, you will, that will never happen to you. I'll fight for you. It will never occur. And Jesus' response is, remember, get behind me, Satan. 
right? So there's, there's a satanic element to derailing Christ from the, and tempting Jesus away from the road he's walking to, to the cross. Earlier in the story, too, Satan tempts Jesus to embrace, remember in the, in the wilderness in Matthew 4, tempts Jesus to embrace his deity and power over his humanity, which is a version of derailing Christ from the cross type temptation as well. So the question is, which is it, right? Does Satan want the cross to happen or not? It seems like he doesn't want to, but then later by inciting Judas, he wants it to, to occur. It's a great question. It's actually one of my bigger questions about the Gospels that I, I honestly just feel, even like this week, I feel like I got some resolution on because it's just confusing, right? He seems to be so bent on tempting Jesus away from the cross, knowing the plan of God, at least in part. He knows it's going to mean his destruction. It's going to mean his end if Jesus does that. But then later here, why would he fill Judas? Right? Why would he incite someone to betray? Why not just kind of let it play out and, and hope that it doesn't happen? It's a great question. It's your question. You're, I mean, it's, it's a good, great question. We're going to answer that today in part. The answer is, again, both. Both are going on. If we're reading the story, we have to say both. Right? Or rather, he's moving from trying to lead Jesus away from it because he knows what it's going to mean to now trying to expedite it. And this is where I think, going back to verse 5, this is where Judas's suicide helps us understand something physically quite interesting about what's happening here spiritually with the devil. And that is, the devil is in process of killing himself. The devil's in process of hanging himself uh, like Judas is physically. Judas's suicide then is a picture of a greater spiritual suicide that's about to occur just hours from now when Christ dies for the sins of the world and deals that fatal blow to the foundation of the house of the devil. Satan then, by inciting Judas to betrayal, is bringing about his own destruction. And here's the key. He knows it. We know that he knows it because we know Matthew 4, Matthew 16 exist, where he's trying to derail it. He knows it's going to mean his destruction, but later in the story, he's trying to expedite it. It's this suicidal idea. So then the question is, how can this be the case? Right? It doesn't make sense. How can this be the case? I mentioned John Piper one more time. I mentioned him before with that book uh, on the cross, but I want to quote him from his book, Spectacular Sins, on this matter. Uh, he says this, and I'll, it's on screen. You could follow along here too. He's a, he says, I think the answer to the question of how does, this, how does this work is Satan is irrational because sin is irrational. He had done his very best to divert Jesus from the cross, but he saw his, Jesus' face, is set like flint to go to Jerusalem. I'm failing. Therefore, he decided, I will make it as horrible as I can. And in doing that, I think he knew he was despairing. It's like a man who's about to commit suicide because he hates his wife, who has made his life miserable. This is what almost all suicide is. It's the way of getting back at somebody. You basically either want to be pitied or you want to really hurt someone. I'm going to kill myself and show my parents how bad they were. So you can just see a man moving right up to the suicide, and his last thought is, this will really make them miserable. Bang. I think that is the way Satan is working when he killed Jesus. He knew, I'm done for. I don't know how long he'll let me maraud in the world to do as much damage as I can, but I'm going to the lake of fire in the end, and I'm just going to take as many people with me as I can. So Satan committed suicide, and he knew it. So a fascinating element here to an already fascinating narrative, Judas's suicide and dark narrative, Judas's suicide is helping us get a glimpse into the mind of the devil and his actions as well. Because suicide stems from pride. It stems from seeing no way out. 
It stems from a desire to control a situation, which maybe they didn't have any control of their life up to that point, and they wanted it in the end. Or a desire to hurt others is really what's going on with evil here. I mean, think about that. All those, the, definitionally what suicide is, place that on the devil, and it fits perfectly. Satan sees no way out, so he arrogantly tries to control the situation on his own terms and bring about his own timeline. He's probably thinking, this is kind of what, what uh, suicide, other forms of sin as well, what's actual suicide or more of a suicidal thought, or just arrogance. A lot of times it plays out arrogantly when someone might think, when we, when we think, I want to, I, I don't see myself having control of the situation again, but I'm going to try to control it nonetheless and expedite it so that I can claim later on that I brought about, I brought, I brought about my way. That's what the devil's doing. To make it as bad for Jesus as possible and bring about the cross in his own timeline. Or so he thinks, but in his own timeline, even though he knows it will mean his undoing. So what does this mean for us? On one level, that, that's, again, factual, in, just information about what's going on here on a physical and a spiritual level and how they relate. But we have to step back and get the preaching point to this too, right? Like we always do. Always ask that. What, if this is true, what does this mean for me right now? If this happened, if God was just in control, if Satan was actually bringing about his own demise and he knew it and God was leading him to that, what does this mean for us now in relation to God and also um, on a regular devotional basis day to day with Christ? Two things. I think first is generally, this type of stuff invites us uh, to do away with any kind of Star Wars theology that we might be holding to. What I mean by that is an understanding of God and evil as equal and opposite yin-yang forces that are at war but never really defeat each other but only achieve balance. That's not the way the Bible talks about good and evil. God is infinitely, immeasurably, immeasurably bigger than evil. And when we see it play out here about being so much more wise and in control that he's even leading the devil to hang himself. He's even leading the devil and working through circumstance to lead him to implode on himself and destroy evil. Isn't that awesome? This is how in control, how much better and over the evils in your life God is. It's not like this and let's roll the dice and maybe I'll have a good day, maybe I'll have a bad day. Maybe God will be in control at the end of the day or maybe evil will, but hopefully balance will occur in my life. What the Bible says is God is just bigger. He's bigger than all of your sins. He's infinitely bigger than the devil. The devil is a created being, Right? The devil is a created being, on par more with Michael the angel, the archangel, rather than God. So think of the two archangels that we know are archangels in the Bible, of like these high up, high tier angels, Michael and Lucifer, Satan, or the devil as co-equals rather than God and the devil. Because we can default back into this Star Wars theology a lot, and it's just harmful. God is much more, much bigger than that, much more in control of your life over even the evil things like we see play out here so perfectly. And we have been throughout the narrative. God's using the evil to make that evil kill itself. He's using death to make death kill itself, like we sang about earlier. He's using the hardship to make that hardship implode on itself and bring blessing to the world, namely salvation from sin. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, though, it, is it gives us that one of those unique angles on the diamond that I was talking about earlier. What happened on the cross is that, don't miss the obvious, associated with Jesus' betrayal and resolve and obedience, ultimately his death, is the absolute destruction of sin for you today and for me. Absolute destruction. So that God is not just offering forgiveness, and he is. He gloriously is. 
And he's not just offering a washing from sin, and he is. He gloriously is. But he's also offering complete annihilation of that which formerly enslaved you. Annihilation. Implosion. Destruction of that which attacks you, which is actually a, a huge form of love. Right? It's, it's, it's like, a, it's like a, a jealous husband who sees his wife threatened, and he goes to fight for her. Not just sit back and say, well, I'm a pacifist, or I can't really... If I want to express love here, I can't really attack that person. My wife's being beat up before me. The wife goes to fight for, the husband goes to fight for his wife, right? A loving husband will. A hateful husband won't. But a loving husband will go and fight for his wife, physically even, in that situation. Right? God is like this as well. He's destroying our sin. Not just being kind of okay with it or figuring out a way around it. He's actually addressing it and killing it as though it were an enemy of the people he loves. Because it is. 1 John 3.8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Hebrews 2.14 again, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He became human. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. That should be the subtitle to your song, Peter, right there. <laughs> it just fits, doesn't it? Thematically, that's the verse right there for that song. Through death, he might destroy the one who has the power over death. That is the devil. When Jesus died for us and rose again, he overwhelmed our threat. He pushed it back as a human being. Not God who kind of looked human, but he became human. He took on all of our sins and then actually absorbed them, then later overwhelmed the thing that sin leads to, death. And he said, if you believe in me, I invite you into that victory. I invite you into that experience by grace. I'm giving it to you. Trust in me. Be one of my people in my kingdom, and I'll, I'll continue to fight for you perfectly. I will see to your sin. Stop trying to see to it yourself. I will see to it. I will love you to the end. I will hold your hand. Colossians 2 gets more specific even, but same idea. It says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This is key here. Look at this word. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The, the idea of when we ask the question, how exactly is the devil being destroyed? It's a multifaceted answer, like a lot of things, but one of the answers is he's taking away the devil's machine gun. He's taking away the sword. He's taking away the instruments of torture because the devil has no, no, more, thi no more thing to say to sinners. Satan actually means accuser. That's the way he's actually going at us. He's just trying to accuse before God. Look at how terrible these people are. You must judge them. It's one of his MOs. And so if that's the case, then what Jesus is doing by taking all of our sin away, is he's taking away the thing that the, the, the weapon that the enemy has to fight against us with. Nothing more to say. That's why you see questions like this in Romans 8, 13, or 33. Who can bring any charge against God's chosen, against God's elect? Who can charge us anymore? Your sin is completely gone if you believe in Jesus, as is mine. There's, there's nothing anyone, including the devil, or anyone else can say before God to accuse you because Jesus has taken away all that you were accused for. It's completely gone. So he's disarmed the devil, and later he will destroy him in that lake of fire. 
as we see occur at the end of history in the book of Revelation. So the destruction's multifaceted here. He's disarming the devil, the rulers and authorities, which are spiritual beings through the devil and his angels, and putting them to open shame by triumphing over them in him or in Christ through the cross. Forgiving us, canceling that debt, and in that way, disarming the rulers and authorities. It's wonderful, wonderful gospel news. So with all these things here, j- just think on a daily basis. Some of you are really struggling with sin. You don't think any way out at all, Christian or not. And the hope here is that, that in the context of Jesus saying the broad, I will see to your sin, he says the specific, I will destroy it. I will destroy it by disarming the devil. I will destroy it by dying in your place. I will destroy it by taking away accusations against you. I will destroy it by becoming a human being and absorbing your sin. So if that's the case, and if Judas is this hint of these greater realities, and he is, then one of the things we need to say on a daily basis when we wrestle with sin, and, and this is one of those, do you believe this questions? This is like, this is the, the daily practice of faith and applying the gospel to our minds. But the, the question first is, or the issue, the concept, better, better than that, better in question is, Jesus is leading the devil and my sin with him to the gallows. Do you believe that? It's actually true today, that your sin has hung itself. That on the cross, sin was condemned, not you who believe. That's from Romans 8, 1 to 4. Do you believe that? On a, on a daily basis, is that part of what you believe when you believe that the cross happened in history and it, and it affected something in you? It's these types of thoughts that, that are inextricably connected to holy living. Like we can't just say to ourselves, live better. We have to say to ourselves, Jesus destroyed my sin, and I actually believe it's true, metaphysically true right now. Something's just happened in the world, and the Holy Spirit is at work in my life, and my sin is actually, in a very decisive, crack-in-the-foundation way, it's been disarmed and defeated. I still feel it, but I believe that I have a greater upper hand or victory over it because my king has won it for me. Like those are things that, that, will, that will give you that upper hand, that way out that God provides of sin, not to mention just leading you to worship. This is what God is like. This is what he's done in the world. This is the offer of the gospel. Just believe in this, first of all. And secondly, apply this to the way that you think. In the context of temptation, think defeated enemy. Think hung enemy. Think God led this thing that's tempting me now to implode on itself 2,000 years ago, and he will again, praise be to God, when he comes back. So the question then is, the related question to I'll close with is, uh, and we'll go back to Judas the man here. I think there's two levels to it again. There's Judas the man, and there's Judas the picture of the devil. That's the spiritual layer to it that's hidden, but actually more important, I think, in some ways that we uncovered here. But going back to the, to the human layer for a second is, what do you do when you're confronted with the horror of your sin? Where do you take it? And how do you respond? And just think very practically, Christian or not, what, what do you do in that moment? Judas did something, right? He was horrified by his sin. He went somewhere with it. He hung himself. Where do you go? There's two places you can really go. Do you go to the one who says, I will see to your sin through my own suffering and death? Or do you listen to the lie that you can see to it yourself, which ultimately, in despair, leads you to end your life spiritually? It's the only place it goes. Is it 
God will see to my sin, I believe he has seen to it past tense, and he is seen to it present tense, and he will see to it future tense when he comes back again to fully glorify all things. Or is it, I believe religiously, I can at least partially see it to it myself. That just leads to hanging oneself, literally or metaphorically. That's the only place it goes. Jesus says elsewhere in the Gospels about religious people like this, the way they think and teach that they're blind guides leading blind people over a cliff. Again, kind of a suicidal idea in one sense, murderous idea in another. Judas is a picture of a man here uh, with remorse. This is actually a huge thing too. Remorse over sin, but no repentance towards Jesus. You guys see the difference? It's possible to have remorse over what you've done, but not go to Christ and still be a million miles from him. 2 Corinthians something something, I'm forgetting the reference, just coming to mind, uh, says there, there is a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, but there's a worldly sorrow that leads to death, that leads to the suicidal idea, leads to the gallows, or leads to walking off a cliff. Is it a worldly sorrow that we have when we sin that leads us away from Jesus, just kind of to make us implode in ourself, in a sense, in depression, and whatever else comes from that? Or does it lead us in our sorrow to, to Christ? That, that's... There's, there's only two ways. There are versions of those things that might sound different, but ultimately the paths only verge on one of the two routes. Christians have a sorrow imperfectly. All of us, Christian or not, will have one of those former ways of thinking that are misguided, but, but Christians in general have a sorrow that moves us to Jesus constantly. Repentance is not trying harder to be a good person your definition of repentance, it's faulty. It's, it's not biblical. Repentance means turning from your old focus, your old way of living, to Christ. It, by, by definition, it just means belief, really, and, and turning to the one who saves and who holds our hand and says, I'll see to your sin. That's repentance. And so our sorrow and our sin, need, Christians do this all the time. And so if you're not doing this as a Christian, just say, sorry, God, help me to move in my sorrow to the one who can take it away and to live my identity in him afresh, not in, not in my sin. Or if you feel like your sorrow is leading you, away to, leading you away to spiritual suicide, if it's le- leading you away in any capacity at all, whether simple or more complex, repent, turn. And in your sorrow, and actually more important than sorrow, the point is not to just work up a feeling over your sin. More important than sorrow is where you go with it. Because a lot of times in our hard-heartedness, we won't feel that bad about our sin, right? We just don't. We don't feel like it's that bad or... I, should, I know it's bad, but I should feel worse about this, but I just don't. More important than working up emotion of sorrow over that is where you take it. Where do you go? I have sinned, we all say, or most of us in the room. I have sinned, I'm wrong before a holy God. Where, where do you go with that? Where does your sorrow take you? Uh, or where does your non-sorrow even take you is the, the ultimate question. So the invitation here in the context of a very, very dark, because Judas didn't go to the right place. He didn't go to Christ. It's not his suicide that led him to hell. It was his not going to Jesus. I just want to make that clear. It's not that he went and hung himself that, that, that finally removed him from God. It was the fact that he did not go to Jesus in his sorrow for sin. Do you see? Even in that moment, there was hope for this guy to run back and to fall on his face. Think of like Peter the apostle or the disciple here who at this point in the story, has re- rejected Jesus as well, has denied him three times. Later on, what does he do? He repents, right? He comes back to Jesus. 
He falls on his face and asks for forgiveness. He's reinstated by Christ as, as a minister of the gospel. He preaches. So it doesn't matter what you've done. We have, we're in full-blown denial of the God of the universe mode. And Christ says, I died for that as well. I've absorbed it for you. I'm helping you through it. It doesn't matter what you've done. Come to the cross, bend your knees and say, Christ, I receive the gift. I accept the fact that you have canceled my record of debt that, st that stands against me. Thank you for dying in my place out of love and for the glory of God the Father. Take it in your sorrow, wherever you are in that. Take it. Take your baggage to him and, and lay it down before him. Let's pray. God, thank you for your grace in, in a very dark passage, uh, but one that we, we thank you, first of all, God, that death is something that you address all the time. It's not something that, as Christians, we have to skirt around because you don't. We actually have the courage we can have the courage and the ability to move towards death because you did. And more than move towards it, you, you took it on. Our God, the God of the universe, has experienced death. It's amazing. And, but yet you overwhelmed it as well. So thank you that we can talk about these things even um, in such matters uh, because you did and you addressed it. And really our hope is uh, not, not a better way of living, but our hope is for an empty tomb. That, that's where all this is going there is an empty, there was an empty, there is an empty tomb. Jesus is alive. He has taken the sins of the world away. Praise be to God. And so um, just pray, God, as we respond through communion now, you'd help us wherever we are spiritually uh, to stop thinking as though we can see to our sin ourselves and look instead of the one who led evil uh, to kill itself for us, for our benefit. He imploded it. Um, praise be to God again that that's our Savior. That's the one who's loved us. He's gone to war for us and not sat passively on his throne, uh, but one who's gone to fight for us. Uh, thank you so much that that's true. Help us to live as though it's true as well, uh, through worship and through a life full of love and good deeds that point back to you. Amen. All right, well, as I said, we're going to spend the rest of our service uh, through worship and communion. If you're here for the first time, we celebrate communion this way on the first Sunday of the month, and it's always available to my right, your left over here the rest of the Sundays of the month, but we especially centralize it because it's such an important thing for Christians to do in community, and that is take this together. And as a spiritual family say, I'm looking to the bread and to the wine, which Jesus said represents my body and my blood, and I'm making it my, my spiritual nourishment. I'm eating it physically to remind myself and the people around me that I'm a part of a new family, a new spiritual family, with Christ being the head, the ultimate husband of that family, a savior, a king, bridegroom. And so when we do that then in community, we're, we're basically saying with our actions that we're Christians, uh, and more than basically, we, we, were, we are announcing it uh, to, to ourselves, to God, and to all those who are watching that, that I am distinctly Christian or distinctly a believer in the fact that what this represents happened in the world, and that I'm in covenant now with God, a relationship with God based on what he's done for us. That's exactly what Jesus says before he breaks the bread and pours out the wine and says, eat and drink to the disciples. He says, wrapped up in this is a new testament or new covenant in my blood. So what I'm about to do on a cross hours from now actually establishes a relationship between God and people. I'm the mediator. I'm the one that comes between sinners and a holy God and makes relationship possible. Because I'm taking the, 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 the chasm away, the barrier away, the wall away, the curtain away, the dividing wall of hostility. It's being broken down. And now we can walk freely into the presence of God. So, but note, Jesus is saying, I am doing this. This goes back to the Isaiah 40 and 43 passages, right? That's, 
That's the gospel of communion, what this represents way back in Isaiah. It's saying, I, I am he who will see to your sin. I am the one who will hold your hand. Incredible imagery, right? In the Old Testament especially, we're touching anything that was pronounced holy by God, but instant death. But he's saying a time is coming where God will hold the hands of sinners. How is that possible? Only by God shedding his own blood in our place as a perfect human being, a God-man, but saying, I am dying for the record of debt that stands against my people. So as that song said earlier, justice, God's justice is being done, but his love and mercy is being expressed as well, and they kiss on the cross. They come together perfectly. So God's not saying at the cross, I'm not being just or I'm not being merciful. He said, I'm being both I, I, because I have to be both. I can't deny myself. I, I'm expressing who I am to the world by, through the cross. You want to know who God is? Look at the cross in particular. Look at the person of Christ and look at the cross in particular. That is how much God is love. So how we practice communion here at Hiawatha, we ask that you are a true believer. You don't have to be a member of our church. could be a visitor. That's fine. But we ask that you're a true Christian. We practice open communion, so please feel free to participate. But we ask as Christ does. This is a symbol of being a Christian. If you're not and you want to be, please come talk to us. Myself and Spencer, other prayers will be up front during the worship set of songs. We'd love to pray with you and help you invite Jesus into your life, or you can where you're sitting. Just express to God you're a mess and you need his grace. Believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. So come on down front and we'll, we'd love to pray with you and talk more about what this means. And then we'd love for you to take communion today uh, as well. But um, regardless, this is only a time for uh, true Christians to partake. So we'll invite the band up here and, and I'll pray. Uh, anytime during the worship of songs, come on down and, and take the wine or juice and the bread uh, here in the front or with your family or individually. It's a pre pretty free time of worship and communion. So uh, let me pray. God, thank you for uh, the bread and the cup, which again reminds us symbolically that you have seen to our sin. You have looked at it, you have condemned it, and you have destroyed it. Thank you so much for that hope we have today. And I pray, God, that if it's our first time we're beginning to find hope in that or the thousandth, that we would be happy in it and glad in it. That we would, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, we would proclaim the death of Jesus Christ through communion. We would sing about it. We would be glad and thankful about the fact that God looked upon us in our sorrow. He looked upon us in our weakness. He looked upon us in our brokenness. And he said, I love you, and I'm going to take care of this. And uh, God, so I pray just uh, for a sweet time of remembrance here today. So communion is really about is remembering what you did for us 2,000 years ago. Help us to, to acutely remember our God and the essence of love that he is. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand as we worship.